Well, we are continuing in our summer sermon series on the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent are this unique little slice of the Psalter, Psalms 120 through Psalms 134. These were, these were traveling songs. As, as the people of Israel traveled to Jerusalem for their annual worship feast, they would, they would uh, go up to this elevated city of Jerusalem and ascend and sing these songs as they went along to fortify themselves, to encourage themselves. This was, the Psalms of Ascent were the, were the OG Spotify playlist for, for road trips. And uh, in, a, in a similar way, for those of us who follow Jesus, we too are seeking after God, going to the city of God, and we too need these songs, songs to sing alongside of them to encourage us, to fortify us, to uh, remind us of why we're going one step after the other. And last week we started this, we looked at Psalm 120, which shows us that you only begin the journey when, when you have been dissatisfied with the, with the world around you. Seeking God begins in dissatisfaction, and this next psalm, Psalm 121, is, is a bit of a necessary sequel to that, because what this psalm does is it shows you that even when you begin this journey, even though you may be doing something, quote, noble, seeking after God, that does not protect you from pain and suffering. Regardless of what your uh, journey is, regardless of what your faith is in, you, you live in a dangerous and scary and unpredictable world. And we know that's true partly because we're, we, you know, there's a global obsession with security. If you just think about the world that we live in, this, this, all this talk about national security, homeland security, you know, we're building a wall at the, you know, the south of our borders. We've, we've hired all these uh, super smart people to protect us from international cyber attacks. We're beefing up our military. You think about uh, COVID security. We've got uh, you know, vaccines and social distance and masks and, and, and uh, hand sanitizer and gloves, which are really helpful for serving uh, communion with. Uh, you've got personal security, which is you know, you've got... Uh, deadbolts on your, you know, at your house, and you've got alarm systems, and uh, you've, you've got doorbell cameras, and uh, safety belts, and airbags, and password-protected Wi-Fi networks. We buy $80 cases to protect our phones. Uh, the, the sale of you know, firearms are skyrocketing right now. Uh, we, we protect our identity. We protect our assets. We, we back up our hard drives. And for all of these protective measures that we're doing obsessively, we still know intuitively that uh, we're vulnerable. Even if you put all your money, you know, in the security of the stock market, 2008 showed us, well, it's not that secure. If you, you know, load up your kids with, with uh, helmets and knee pads, they inevitably still come back with blood on them and tears. And uh, even if you, you know, you only eat organic food and cut out gluten and you use essential oils, it still doesn't protect you from, from life-threatening illness. And so the, the question really is, the million-dollar question is, is how do you go through life, which is so dangerous, so unpredictable, and not just go crazy? How do you make your way through life and not become a paranoid, neurotic control freak? That's what Psalm 121 is about. It tells you that security, real inner security, is available if you know where to look. And it's going to tell you to look three places, to look at yourself, to look at God, and then to look at others. 
So that's what I want to try to tease out with you from Psalm 121 this morning. Three places to look if you want to get security. Look at yourself, look at God, then look at others. First, look at yourself. Uh, here's this person traveling to Jerusalem, and in verse 1, they ask a pretty interesting question. I think it's kind of curious. They say, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Now, why would this person be on their journey towards Jerusalem, and they look around, and they see all of these hills, and what is it about those hills that's prompting this question? Why would he look at hills and say, where does my help come from? Here's why. Because at this point when, the, uh, this, point when this psalm was written, pagan worship had really just kind of infiltrated this whole area, this whole area of Palestine. And so the way that it worked back then is that people would go up on hilltops and they would set up shrines or poles or altars to worship these foreign gods. You, you, you hear this reference all throughout the Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures about the high places, that's what it's talking about, these hilltops where all these different worship services were taking place. So the way that it worked back then was if, you're, if the sun was threatening to, to dry up and destroy all of your crops, which was your food source, it was your income, you could go up onto a, 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 you know, a hillside and, and pay off a priest to, to give some sacrifice to the sun god to protect your crops from the sun, theoretically. Or if you needed more crops or you needed more children, people would go up onto the hills and they would worship Baal, who was this fertility god. And if you worshiped him, theoretically, he was the one who was going to give you more, you know, more stuff, more, more kids, more crops, more whatever. And so he's, he's looking around at all of these hills. He's surveying all of these options of where his help could come from. It's a buffet of choices that he's looking around and saying, okay, does my help come from those places. He's looking at hills, but he's really looking at himself. He's taking a, a, a personal spiritual inventory, and he's asking himself, when life really gets chaotic and crazy and out of control, what is my functional help? What do I look to to help me? That's what he's doing. He's asking himself, where does my help come from? And I think we have to ask ourselves the same question. That's where we have to begin. If you want inner security, you have to ask the honest question about yourself. You have to be courageous enough to do the hard work and look at your own soul and say, okay, where do I really look? When life gets crazy and out of control and unpredictable, where am I looking for security? For some of us, it's our money. That when the, the number on our bank statement is the right number, that's what makes us feel the most secure, the most comfortable, the most we feel like we're in control. Uh, for some of us, it may just be a, a drink of just knowing that if I can just get through the craziness of this day, I know waiting for me when I get home is a six-pack or two or three cocktails. For some of us, it may just be organization, it's like, I, 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 I feel secure in my world if my world is straight and organized and everything's in its order. If I can get my house straightened up, if I can get my desk cleared of all the clutter, if I can kind of get my inbox cleaned out, then I feel some sense of security. My, my first call to ministry out of seminary was to work with a, a campus ministry many of you might, know, uh, might be familiar with, RUF. It was at RUF at Appalachian State University, which is in Boone, North Carolina. 
If you're familiar with Boone, you might know that it is one of like the outdoorsy meccas of, of our country. It's just this awesome spot to do all kinds of fun outdoor stuff. And so often I would get together with some of our students and we would just go out on adventures. And we'd look for waterfalls to jump off of or swimming holes to you know, swim in the woods. And occasionally we would come across uh, a rope swing which is, you know, somebody has done the hard work of climbing up a tree or whatever and tying up a, a rope to a, a limb so that you could swing over these dangerous rocks and get out to the deep part of the, of the water and splash into it. And so anytime we would come up upon one of these things, you see this old tattered rope, you have no idea how long it's been you know, sitting there. We'd always ask ourselves the same question. Can that thing hold me? If I'm going to pull this thing back and put all of my weight on it, and release, is it going to hold me or is it going to snap and I'm going to fall and, you know, break myself on these rocks? That is the question that you have to ask. As you are doing this spiritual inventory and you're asking yourself, where does my help come from? The harder question is, do, do I really think this thing can bear the weight of my life? If I put all of me onto this thing because I'm hoping it's going to provide me with some help and some security, can it bear the weight of my soul? If you look to money, you have to be able to ask yourself the question, if I'm trusting in this thing, what happens when it, when it goes away? What happens when some unpredictable medical emergency just liquidates my, my savings? What happens when the stock market crashes again? If you're looking to leisure or to escape to be the thing to really uh, nurture you and give you a sense of security, what happens when it fails to satisfy? because it, you always get bored with the thing and you just need the next thing. What happens when you get bored? Or if you're looking to organization as the thing to give you a sense of security in the world, what happens when your plans don't go according to plan? Or what happens when you have children and they become a wrecking ball that just smashes into your life and you just live with a perpetual state of chaos? That's the hard question is, can these things bear the weight of my soul? And really, if you want any inner security, the first, the hard question, I want to challenge you to do the courageous work of asking yourself the question, where is my functional trust? What do I look to when things get chaotic and can it bear the weight of my soul? You got to look at yourself first. But secondly, you have to look at God. This question that he asks in verse 1, he answers in verse 2. He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He begins by focusing our attention on who the Lord is, primarily that the Lord is the creator, the maker of heaven and earth. He's reminding you that God is bigger than everything because God is the designer of everything, and therefore, he's the only one who's big enough to bear the weight of your soul. He's the only one that can really be your true help. He, he, he's in control of every molecule for the simple fact that he made every molecule. But as the psalm goes on, the, the psalmist doesn't give you a picture of God as this distant creator who just wound up the universe like a clock and set it down to run on its own. He shows you in verses three through four how vigilant God is. Three times in these two verses, he makes this point. God does not sleep. He doesn't take naps. He doesn't slumber. He is alert and attentive to every detail. Nothing goes past him. You don't have to snap in his face and say, hey, 
over here, which I think is so, um, it's so beautiful because it combats two insidious lies. The first lie is that you have to do something to get God's attention. You've got to perform in some way to get God to look at you, to get God to take his eyes off the newspaper, as it were, to look up from his phone when you're doing something that's worthy of his attention. And this is saying, no, he is always attentively focused on you. He's never ignoring you, never overlooking you for somebody else. And then the second lie that this image combats is this idea that when horrible things happen, it's because God is checked out. I don't know if you're anything like me, when horrible things happen or there's just inexplicable, insane, painful, crazy things that happen, it's just easy to say, God, where, where were you? Where are you? What are you doing? And this shows you, okay, he has not checked out. He's not fallen asleep on the job. You may not know all the reasons why he's allowed to happen, whatever has happened, but it's not because he's abandoned you. And in fact, this whole idea just gets intensified in the next two verses. Look at, in verses five through six, look at how involved his presence is. It says that the Lord is your shade at your right hand. This means that he is as with you as your shadow is. I remember when I was younger, as a smaller boy, probably Reed's age, eight or so, I remember watching a cartoon. I, can't, I honestly can't remember which one it was. Maybe Bugs Bunny. We'll just think it's Bugs Bunny. And Bugs Bunny did some movement, and his shadow did something different. And, and I know Peter Pan had his shadow kind of have a life of its own, and they had to capture it and sew it back onto his feet. Maybe it was Peter Pan that I'm thinking of. It doesn't really matter. The point is, I remember a cartoon character doing something, and then his shadow did something else. And, and I re the reason I vividly remember this is because I went into the backyard on a sunny day and tried to fake out my own shadow. You know, so you can see my shadow here. I would try to juke it. I'd, I'd move this way and that way and just... Maybe I can trick my shadow into doing something different. It didn't work. How amazing, though, would it have been if I had done that and the shadow had done something else? But it didn't. It was, it was um, just a normal shadow. But the point being is that your shadow is always with you. You can't, you can't trick it to doing something else. When it says that the Lord is the shade at your right hand, there's this picture that he is, he is, he is intimately stuck to you in some ways. He is always with you. He is with you when you succeed. He is with you when you fail. He is with you when you feel spiritually attuned to him, and he is with you when you're doubting his existence. He is always with you. And then look at these last two verses. We see his protective care. It says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Now, does that mean he's going to prevent anything bad from happening to you? No. In fact, Derek Kidner, who's an Old Testament scholar, he, he, he says there's this passage in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus makes this promise to his disciples that is somewhat analogous to the logic of what's going on here. Jesus says in that passage to his friends, he says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death but not a hair of your head will perish. Now, how can you be put to death and not a hair of your head perish? What is he honestly promising here? 
He is promising to guard you from the evil within the bad things. In verse 7, he does not say he will keep you from all trouble. He'll keep you from all suffering. He says he'll keep you from all evil. Now, Eugene Peterson helps put some skin to this. Eugene Peterson is kind of my gold standard reference for this whole series. He's got a great book on this called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which I would commend to you. But I included this little quote at the beginning of your bulletin, but here's this image that Eugene Peterson uses. It's fascinating. He says, all the water in all the oceans cannot sink a ship unless it gets inside. Isn't that such an amazing image? You think about this ship on the, you know, just gazillions of gallons of water surrounding it, and it doesn't sink the ship unless it gets inside. And he goes on, nor can all the trouble in the world harm us unless it gets within us. None of the things that happen to you, none of the troubles you encounter have any power to get between you and God, to dilute his grace in you, divert his will from you. This is saying nothing has the power to sabotage his love for you and his grace for you and his plan for you. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. That, does, that, that means that there is no amount of sickness or no diagnosis, no loss, no tragedy, no heartache, not even death itself can separate you from God's love for you and God's purpose for you. Now, you might hear this and you think, okay, that's great. I would love to believe that. How can I believe that? How can I be so sure that that is true? The way that you can be sure that that is true is that you lift up your eyes to a different hill. The hill of Golgotha. The hill of Calvary. Where God himself came down onto that mountain. Where Jesus himself, on that mountain, at the cross, bore in himself the evil of the world. The world's Sin, And he let that evil deep inside of him. He let the evil in him, so much so that it sank him down, down to the grave, down into death itself. He let the evil inside of him so that it would never get inside of you. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 8. He says, if God the Father was willing to give away his most prized possession for you, that has to mean that he is not going to withhold anything good from you. He is, he is exclusively committed to you, so much so that he was willing to give up his own son. That's how you can know. Here's what he says, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? This is the God that can bear the weight of your soul. He is your creator. He is vigilant. He is personally involved. He is the shade at your right hand. He suffered in your place, not so that you would never suffer again, but so that when you suffer, you might know that you are loved and he is with you in it. And your suffering is not a sign that he has abandoned you. That's the God that we look to. We look at ourselves we look at God, and then lastly, briefly, we also have to look at others. Here's what I mean. Maybe if you noticed in this, uh, this little psalm, there's a change of pronouns. In verses 1 and 2, it's all first person. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And then in verses 3 through 8, it all switches to second person. It's all you language. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. On and on. 
Scholars believe that this was originally written to be a call and response. Uh, like, a, you know, it's liturgical. That You have this crowd of people, and they're going towards Jerusalem together, and one of them shouts out, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And somebody else in the group, presumably, maybe a priest, shouts back, he will not let your foot be moved. He will not slumber. He's the shade at your right hand. What this shows you is that you can't walk toward God in a chaotic world by yourself. You need traveling companions. You need people with you, surrounding you, reinforcing your faith, reminding you, yes, God is with you. He has not abandoned you. He is with us. He is our help. Because Monday is coming. And if you're anything like me, you're, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and basically forget everything that you just heard, everything that I just said. Psalm 121 is just going to evaporate, and you're going to be bombarded from all these promises of the world saying, you can't really trust God. How can, you, how can you trust somebody you can't even see? What is real security is going to be found in money. It's going to be found in comfort. It's going to be found in productivity. It's going to be found in efficiency. It's going to be found when you take control of your life. And I'm going to be tempted to believe all of those lies all over again tomorrow. And so we need each other to remind us of what is true. He has not left you. He is our help. He's the shade at our right hand. Brene Brown is this you know, famous author, TED Talker, researcher. And a number of years ago, uh, she, she was talking about her return back to the church. And she uses this amazing image. She says when she first started going back to church, she was expecting the church to function like an epidural. You know, like when you're going through the pain of childbirth and epidural, like it's just going to take away the pain. And she said she quickly realized how naive that was, that the church, the community of Jesus, is not an epidural, it's, it's more like a midwife. Where a midwife doesn't take away the pain, a midwife is someone who's just with you holds your hand through the pain, reminds you that they're there and they're coaching you through it. I think, man, that is such a great image for what the community of Jesus is, that we can't take each other's pain away, but we can be with each other in it, holding each other's hands, reminding each other, I am with you and God is with you. He is the shade at your right hand. He has not fallen asleep on you. He is with you. He has suffered in your place. That is why we need each other. We need, this, is, this is in many ways why, one of the reasons why Redeemer exists. We gather together so that we can remind one another of his great love for us. Because we forget it. We forget it. We need, each, we need traveling companions. Do you have that? Do you have traveling companions that can come alongside of you and hold your hand and say, I get it. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm so sorry. But I'm with you. And the Lord is with you. So. How do you get security in a chaotic, dangerous, crazy world? My hope, my prayer for you and for me is that after we look to ourselves and look, look at ourselves and look at God and look at each other, we might be able to answer the same way that the psalmist answers it. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would indeed give us eyes to see the trustworthiness, the beauty, the attention, the personal vigilance of you in our lives, that we might be compelled and convinced afresh 
that you are our only true hope. You are the only one that we truly can rely on. And I pray that that would help us to take our eyes off of other saviors, other gods that we might look to to comfort us and to give us security. Help us to answer this question in the same way that the psalmist does as we lift up our eyes and look to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.